0: We're going to start a series on church history today, and uh, first place I want to uh, go uh, in the scripture is in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So why don't we just turn there real quick. It's going to be Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 11. Today it's mainly going to be kind of an introduction. Um, we are probably not going to get into a lot of history yet. I kind of want to just lay out... What the main thoughts are, what the main kind of the main point, the the whole direction and trajectory that I'm hoping to achieve in this series. So um, to do that, we're going to look at some verses here, kind of just go over some key ideas that have been on my mind and kind of guiding me as I've been studying and and just reading a bit about church history in uh, recent months. So let's go ahead. We're in uh, James and Jeffrey, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 to start today. Chapter 1. Chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. So I'll go ahead and read those here. This is uh, the word of God says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after know we're in Ecclesiastes this morning, just starting an uh, introduction on church history today. Um, in our time, one of the major conversations that has been going on has kind of revolved around this word called, word relevance, and relevance is, um, at least in the con- context of the discussion, it's it's this idea that with respect to the social issues of our time, there's this question of what is appropriate or related to um, or have some bearing on or influence on the ideas and events and activities of our present time. Um, so it seems to be a really big conversation. You even have, there's a church out there, um, they've got multiple branches around the nation called Relevant Church. I know next to nothing about them. i am just noticed they're out there, so I'm not saying they're good or bad. Um, there's a lot of even podcasts out there that talk about relevance, so to speak, but I think um, when you look at a passage like this one in Ecclesiastes by King Solomon, you realize that Solomon would probably think that this whole conversation is kind of absurd. It's kind of yeah, almost a silly conversation to have. But Solomon, well, for one thing, if you think about it, the, the idea of relevance is kind of a self-conscious word. It's, it, it assumes that you know, our own present time is kind of a measuring line for things. Um, our own present ideas and what we're preoccupied with today, that kind of determines whether something's important or not, right? But Solomon has a different point of view. Solomon is, he looks at the big picture of human history. He's looking at past, present, and he's thinking about the future. And his conclusion is, here in in chapter 1, he's telling us that all human activity is futile, meaningless, vain, or profitless, or in the word. You could say, it's irrelevant. Everything is irrelevant. And Solomon makes four big statements. This passage in Ecclesiastes 1 is really the introduction to the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And um, Solomon's four statements to kind of introduce that in this, uh, you could say this is a poem, an introductory poem. Um, his first statement is obviously in, in, chap- in verses, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Uh, it's, the, it's the argument. He says, everything's futile. Vanity of vanity says such the a creature. There's no profit in human in enterprise or endeavor. The next statement in, in verses 4 through 7 is effectively uh, Solomon is telling us that human history is circular and repetitive. He likens it to the processes of nature. Uh, you have the water flowing down through a river to the ocean, then evaporates in the cloud, goes back over the land, rains again, the whole cycle just happens again. And Solomon is saying... That's what human existence, that's what human history is like. It's just this repetitive, meaningless cycle. Happens over and over again with no meaning. And then in verse 8, really key idea that he also develops later, Solomon says there's no satisfaction or fulfillment. Um, There's desire. We have desire, right? We have an urge for something. But there's no satisfaction. He says uh, man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied. The ear uh, is not filled with hearing. The desire is there, but no satisfaction. Later on in uh, chapter 3, Solomon kind of develops this idea further. He says in in chapter 3, verse 11, he complains that uh, God has put, quote, God has put eternity in our hearts. So in other words, there's a, a, a desire in our hearts for eternity, and yet, the reality is that desire is doomed to be left unfulfilled. And then the fourth statement in verses 9 through 11 that Solomon makes is um, that, that as far as humanity is concerned, there's nothing that is turning, eternally meaningful or relevant. He says there's nothing that really, uh, it boiled down, there's nothing really relevant or meaningful. Now, uh, Ecclesiastes, obviously, is a, it's a provocative book. Um, A lot of people are going to have problems with it. I think uh, the world especially is going to have problems with it. Christians even have problems with this book. But um, the reality is it is the word of God. It's not just, you know, a um, set of complaints by a cranky old man who's a little bitter. It's not just there for us to kind of look at and say, oh, this is a warning from God that we shouldn't become cranky and bitter like Solomon was. It's actually the word of God and it's, I believe it's the truth that God is telling us that uh, he, he wants us to know about this tragic reality of human existence um, and effectively that eventually all of our achievements, everything that we do, everything that we hope in is really going to go the away the dinosaur in the end. So, Now, this is important because uh, one of God's greatest indictments of humanity and the world is uh, not that the world has this glum, hopeless attitude. Uh, but it's almost more often the opposite, that the world tends to have this uh, rebelliously, and we, we might even add ridiculously, yeah. Yeah. triumphalist yeah. Yeah. attitude. Uh, you want a really good example yeah. just in our own time? I think uh, two months ago there was a debate and going on in Congress, and one of the, uh, uh, one of the congressmen stood there on the, in the middle of the debate, stands on the floor of the House, and he says, America is the greatest nation in the history of the world. Um, and everybody clapped, Democrats, Republicans, both sides of the aisle, in the middle of this really rancorous debate, and it's kind of silly if you think about it, apparently with all of our disagreement, with all of our uh, anger and infighting in here in Washington, one thing that we can all agree on, or at least they all agree on on Capitol Hill, is America is the greatest nation in history. And um yeah, I think yeah, if, you, if you spend time reading history, that just even even to me an American, I love my country, it feels just a little bit you know, it's had ridiculous. It's kinda of silly when you think about it. God's message in a book like Ecclesiastes is that ultimately um, America, whether whether it's America or Rome or Egypt or Babylon or any other great nation in history whether it's you or me personally, or any generation, any culture, any society, everything goes the way of the dinosaur in the end. Everything is eternally irrelevant, except for one major exception. So the great thing about the gospel, of course, is that in the gospel we have that exception, and um, to kind of get a, maybe a broader understanding of that, why don't we go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians we're going to be in First Corinthians fifteen. fifteen. First Corinthians fifteen. The Bible teaches us. Um, it doesn't, obviously, it, it spends time giving us this reality about the futility of human existence, but the Bible is also there to give us the one and only one hope that really undermines and, and trumps that, that uh, universal reality. 1 Corinthians 15. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I want to look at kind of the summary verses, the, the key points that are in this chapter. This is um, Paul, of course, writing to the Corinthians at the end of the letter, or near the end of the letter he's going to deal with a particular issue that's come up in the Corinthian church. And it's closely related to, I believe it's very closely related to the, what, we, what we see in Ecclesiastes. Uh, let's look at verses 1 through 4, first of all. So 15, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If you, uh, We'll go ahead and underline that word in vain, or if you don't like to underline things in your Bible, go ahead and write that down in a notebook. We'll circle back to that one. So he says, unless you believed in vain, verse 3, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. So, right up here at the front of the, at the beginning of this chapter, Paul kind of gives you just a brief summary. He's telling the Corinthians, this is the the gospel that you have believed in. And there's a reason why he's he's reminding them of it, uh, just in summary. If we go down to verse 12, we can kind of get behind, uh, get under uh, get to the point that Paul is getting to. Uh, in verse 12 through 19, he begins. He says, Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Go ahead and underline empty. Go write it down. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Go ahead and underline futile. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So the doctrinal issue that's kind of emerged in, in, in Corinth at this time is that there's somebody there, or maybe some people there, who are saying there's no resurrection, or it's past. And Paul's whole point is, well, if that's true, then everything that we believe is pointless. Everything that I preached to has no, no meaning. Our faith has no hope at the end of the day. We're, we're, it's completely vain, and futile and purposeless. Look down also at verse 32. I think that's is a key one as well. And verse 32, Paul says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Uh, when Paul says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, he's probably quoting a verse in Isaiah. Um, it's Isaiah 22, 13. And the context there is a situation where people are facing uh, God's imminent wrath and judgment, and instead of repenting and, and grieving, uh, they, they're saying, they're basically living it up. And kind of, their whole attitude is kind of a cavalier, nihilistic attitude where they're saying, well, if uh, we're going to get judged, if we're going to die anyways, let's go ahead and have as much fun as we can right now. And God condemns that in, in Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. But what's ironic here is what Paul is saying is that if there's no resurrection, if there's no hope, we might as well go ahead and live that way. We might as well go ahead and be like that. And and again, what's ironic, I think, is that as sol- or I'm sorry, as Paul is saying that, he sounds a lot yeah. like Solomon. In uh, chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, uh, there's nothing better for man but to uh, eat and drink and to you know, be satisfied with the work of his hands uh, during his brief lifetime. Solomon made the same conclusion that Paul is making um, if there's no resurrection. So again, look back at the, um, uh, if you look back at the words that we uh, underlined in this passage right here, we have vain, we have empty, we have futile. These are all words which are the same ideas that we find in Ecclesiastes. And so what Paul is telling us here is he's saying, basically, Ecclesiastes is the universal truth for humanity. It, with the one exception that, as Christians in the gospel, we have a hope of the resurrection. So Paul's telling us that the one thing that undermines the otherwise universal truth of the Ecclesiastes is this hope right here that he's talking about uh, in 1 Corinthians, the resurrection. He sums it up in um, verses 50 uh, through 58. Let's look at 50 through 52 real quick. Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal has put on I'm sorry for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality also look down finally at uh, verse 58 where he finally sums up the point that he's making he says, therefore, because of this whole argument, therefore, my bre- my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not what? Your labor is not vain, Right. So what he's saying in this whole argument of, of 1 Corinthians is, because of the re- resurrection, life The work of the church, the work of Christians, the the life of of the the believer is not in vain. Whereas, otherwise, everybody's life is in vain, apart from the resurrection. That's the point that um, Paul's making. And that's the point that I think I want to have and kind of keep in mind as we get into church history in in this series here The fact of the matter is the church is the one institution, it's the one group of people in human history who have been given this uh, hope for relevance, this real hope for eternal meaning, and have been entrusted with the the work of protecting, preaching, defending that hope until Christ comes back. Uh, And for that reason, I think that we as Christians should be fascinated with church history. Um, I hear people say... At times, well, it seems dry. I don't, I don't get that, honestly. I, I think it's fascinating, quite frankly. Well, history in general is fascinating. But the church's history should be the most fascinating thing to us if we're believers. Um, it's the reality that it's the stories about the men and the women and, and children who we will join with in resurrection one day when Christ returns, who we will be united with in Christ one day, um, who, we, who we will enjoy eternity with. It's also the story of how they passed that, um, that whole hope of the gospel, that whole message of the gospel down through so many centuries to our time and how it eventually got to us. So it's with that main thought, um, that whole idea that I think what I want to come to and approach the story of the church's uh, birth, um, or really its, it's, it's uh, progress from the time of the apostles up to our present day. So, uh, just some key things, um, some key points that I think I want to lay out as far as uh, what our our practical approach and and steps forward will be. Um, First of all, of course, we're going to consider the story of our spiritual ancestry, um, and it's going to, for us, I think it's going to start in uh, the first century, the latter part of the first century. Uh, Pastor George just completed a series, I think it was at the end of last year, he completed The series on Acts, and in Acts, uh, we have Paul leaving for um, Rome, or actually, I think at the end of Acts, he's in Rome under house arrest, and it kind of ends there. So, what I would like to do obviously, church history begins really in the Gospels, and in in some sense, you could argue the Old Testament is likewise part of church history, but for us, since we've already kind of covered that and do cover that on a regular basis in, in the normal teaching here. What I want to do is probably start with that point where Paul is in Rome, and kind of move on from there to the deaths of the, of the apostles, and start going through what's called the Patristic period in church history. And that's going to go through probably up to about the seventh um, or eighth century A.D. And my near-term goal is to at least get to Saint Augustine, who is uh, he died in this I want to say fifth century um, A.D. So um, that's kind of a near-term goal. And of course, if depending on how quickly we go, we may get on to later periods like medieval church history, um, uh, okay. reformation history, and then even later as well. Uh, the approach for this class, too, I want it to really be like this has always been, this, this time of what we call Bible-equipping hour. And so uh, what I don't want it to be is I really don't want it to become kind of like what you would call maybe... Church History 101, something you might take at your uh, Bible college. Uh, Nothing wrong with that, Uh, but um, rather than just kind of be facts-oriented, I want it to really be uh, the same as it's been in the past, where we're coming to uh, this uh, first session of Sunday morning to be equipped from Scripture. And so we'll be looking at the history of the church, and then looking at it through the lens of Scripture. Uh, using it to give us more information so that we can better understand Scripture um, and hopefully apply Scripture to our daily lives. Uh, there are going to be some breaks in our schedule as well. Um, I can't, uh, probably can't sustain teaching this every single week, so I'll probably do several weeks at a time, then take a break, and then do another several weeks at a time. So kind of just as maybe a suggestion, uh, during the off weeks where I'm not teaching this class, we have a lot of other uh, teachers here at the church and it, it could be um, not a bad idea if one of the um, other brothers here would like to take up sort of like a one-off story from church history from a different period than we're kind of working through. You could teach a, um, uh, a, a story from medieval history or from the Reformation, maybe missions history from later on, but kind of be just kind of a, a good way to break up the, the normal process of things. Um, there's a... Uh, Another thing that I want to try to do is I do want to try to keep these sessions a little bit shorter, so they're, um, we do have time for fellowship, and also have time, I know we have a worship team that needs to move over and get set up after this time, so I do want to aim for about half an hour. They won't be super long. Um, I will try to start on time. We'll try to move. It'll be fairly brief, and then if for any reason, I mean, uh, the stories from church history can kind of get long if for any reason we don't get through it in the first half hour of a of a, of a session here. What I'll probably do is I'll find a good breaking point, just end the class, and then we'll pick up with it at the next week. Uh, so that'll be kind of the way that we deal with that. Um, sources that I use, I know Jeff had questions about this. One of the major sources, what, what I'll do is we'll go through these stories as well. They're probably going to start referring to some of the people and sources that I'm using. You'll probably hear me talk about a guy named Eusebius a bunch, uh, he's considered, he's 4th century, um, church father, and he's uh, considered the first his church historian, like our own historian in the church, so I've told him a lot, we'll actually get to him and study a little bit about him when we get to that period, but um, you'll hear me refer to them a bit, and what I'll try to do as well is if I do use a source here, I'm going to try to print out a bibliography for you guys so you can take it home and kind of see where this is coming from, maybe look it up yourself if you want, um, uh, and then, last of all, just a note to, um, uh, especially to parents: the class is rated PG for violence. So um, we're going to deal with some martyrs. It gets morbid. Um, we'll try to be discreet, um, but martyrdom stories are not for the weak of stomach. There's definitely some uh, pretty gruesome stuff. So um, uh, just be aware, and I'll try to warn you too when we're when we're going that way. So if you have kids, um, I'll let. Uh, Alex uh, and Monica know if they have kids and they're bringing them um, just might be some, some heavier Sundays when we deal, we deal with that stuff so, um, and that's more or less it and we're coming down for the last few minutes of our half hour does anyone have any questions at all? Okay. There are no questions. I'll give you just a little taste of what we're going to get into next week. Um, when uh, Paul went to Rome, uh, Jerusalem was, of course, reaching a, boil- a boiling point culturally, politically, and otherwise, uh, religiously, of course. And of course, when he was there, we saw it. We saw Jerusalem boil over into a riot and um, chaos. Uh, which resulted in Paul's imprisonment and eventual trip to Rome. After Paul leaves for Rome, that that sort of that, that tension and that pressure that is building up to a boiling point in Jerusalem uh, continues. Only now there's a new target for the anger and the hatred that's going on there, and that target actually becomes the Apostle James. Uh, he kind uh, of becomes the center of attention after, in a short time after Paul leaves there. So next week we're going to uh, learn the story of James and what happens in about the mid 60s AD in Jerusalem after the story of Paul uh, in, that we've learned in Acts more or less concludes. Okay, so that's what we'll come to next week.